0: Welcome to Chromodiversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chromodiversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. You're listening to the second of two episodes about growing up with Michael in conversation with his father, Gary Gleesman, ex-chairperson of Axis The association for x and y chromosome variations like the first episode its content could be triggering for some and you may wish to stop listening here in the first part of our conversation gary told the story of the loss of his son michael diagnosed with an extra x at the age of 24 and found dead earlier this year at the age of 37. in the second part you'll hear important on varnished recommendations for parents and policymakers. the episode concludes with a eulogy to michael found in his truck shortly before his death as written by michael himself as you can imagine this was not an easy conversation to have the reason gary has agreed to speak out is to convey a simple message that the absence of systematic early detection and intervention comes at an unacceptably high cost to many individuals and families around the world. What advice would you give to parents who've just learned that their child or future child has an extra chromosome?
1: I have gotten to be much more vocal with parents and families, urging them to become advocates for their kids and to teach their kids to become self-advocates because They're just simply not gonna get it from the health professionals. The health professionals are not aware of these conditions. They're not aware of how they need to be supported. They look at only their narrow portion of medical issues that might be associated, but certainly anything involved with neurodevelopmental or, or neurobiological or just executive skill function, they aren't there. And so the schools follow the medical professionals without having clear guidance from that sector there's only one chance and and that's if families become very very familiar with the current research that's being done with brain function with a lot of these kids and the idea of things that can be done at very very young ages that will help them develop better some of the skills that they may be struggling with and some of them may not need it at all some of them may be able to adjust to adapting in the real world in the right set of circumstances that they don't need those kinds of supports. But I would venture to guess that at the end of the day, 90% or more, just as they found that a high percentage of Kleinfelder kids need some remedial speech and language intervention to get them to catch up to their peer groups. And, and again, emphasize the catch up to. It's not that they can't function in those areas, it's they need to learn a little bit differently and have more exposure to uh, support that will allow them to develop the skills that they're trying to develop. And the same thing holds true for executive skill function, for social and emotional development, for all these areas that are so difficult to objectively measure by the health professions. Uh, If parents focus on that and understand what can be done at early ages and more or less become very assertive and demand from the health professionals and the educational professionals that my kids find he may he he may not learn the same as the rest of the kids that you're saying but he can do quite well with the right amount with the right support and until parents start kind of demanding that type of response from the professions they're going to have a struggle, you know, trying to find help.
0: Where can parents go to learn how to be such advocates?
1: Fortunately, there are specialty clinics for XXY and other sex chromosome aneuploidies develop around the country, approximately a dozen of them now available. And that doesn't make it easy for everyone to have access to, but I would certainly highly recommend parents do whatever it takes to get their kids fully evaluated at one of these specialty clinics, because at that point, they'll have a working document that they can take back to their local providers and say, look, this is where my kid's at. This is the types of things he needs assistance with. And we're going to design a program locally that will provide that for him. So... That's my preferred method of suggesting that parents get professional help from one of these specialty clinics. Short of that, there's accessible documents published now by various research teams around the country and around the world that talk about how important it can be for especially younger Kleinfelder kids to be exposed to some of this developmental work. The information is out there. It's just some parents need more help than others in terms of of trying to access, you know, and understand what it means and then interpret that to
0: professionals that are not on top of things yet. What recommendations would you give to doctors? There's a continuing medical education course
1: that we Uh, the AXIS organization has released on their website that is free to physicians that is basically a, a Kleinfelder primer so that they understand what some of the current research is showing at this point. And it needs to be updated even more now, especially with, the neurodevelopmental research that's come out of some of these special research groups, that still seems to be uh, the, the big, in my mind, the big missing piece doctors can somewhat deal with the medical issues and they can become familiar with some of the medical challenges that can come along with Kleinfelders, but they are woefully inadequate when it comes down to behavioral types of stuff. At best, they would make a referral to a psychiatrist or a mental health professional who also isn't going to know very much, if anything, about Kleinfelders. And so again, will be very limited help and they'll try and push parents and kids down a traditional road of, of either medication or maybe some talk therapy, but they they don't understand the developmental needs of these kids. So the fact that exists in the state that it does right now, just back to looking at the parents again of saying, we've got to get all these families educated and they've got to go in and sort of demand from these physicians to get up to the same level. You know, there's articles, there's research papers, there's CME training. It's a big leap from the research, the research clinics into common, ordinary day-to-day practice. And it's going to take years, you know, for physicians to get to that level, all the way back to getting more information to them while they're going through medical school, even they get maybe a day on genetics in their medical school training. And that's just completely inadequate. It isn't enough. So again, you know, we're back to the parents being the advocates of saying, I'm not willing to accept the fact there's nothing that can be done.
0: If there was one piece of research you'd like to see done in the future, um, what would it be about?
1: Again, I would say a lot is known about the medical and health related issues with pine fillers. And it's, not, it's still not ideal because they still don't know why there's a predisposition to developing blood clots, for instance, or that the fact that these guys can be very at risk with different metabolic conditions and prone to developing diabetes. A lot of that information still needs to have further research, but at the end of the day, the brain is still the key organ for me. They don't understand enough about it. They don't have programs to support families and kids, and they just need to get better at it. And thank goodness, We've got some research specialists around the world, again, like I mentioned earlier, that are doing the research on this that are coming up with very specific programs now of saying, we know this condition exists. We know they have a high disposition to developing attention deficit disorder types of issues. Um, Here are things that can be done starting at age one, two, three, and four that will help prevent this from developing and maybe
0: not end up having it as an issue at all. Do you have a favorite memory of Michael? And how would you like him to be remembered?
1: He was such a great kid and a great character and was just impacted by this self-treatment of opiate addiction. It was a small part, but a major influence on his life. And so the rest of his life was, he was a strong family kid um, involved with the church involved with scouts and great social relationships i was surprised at his funeral probably half of his senior class that he graduated with showed up or sent personal notes about how shocked they were and how much he had helped them uh, during his time in high school uh, just by being a really good friend and so that 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 really struck home with me because we didn't have a complete idea of, of all of his personal relationships and the fact that so many of them, 20 years after graduation, still had these strong memories of all the positive things he had tried to help them with during his time at school. That created
0: a very strong memory for us. Is there any one message you'd like to convey to policymakers or anyone who might be in a position to back much wider support in order to achieve the change that we need in this area?
1: There's no question that is absolutely critical that all kids get tested for these basic genetic differences at birth. I mean, there's just, that would have changed the trajectory so much for our son and would for any family, I know there's concern about families, how they'll react to getting that information. And part of the challenge is that so many health professionals don't understand the condition and so consequently are not going to be in a position to be able to provide the best information or best advice to some of these families. So, Step one is getting them educated, uh, all the geneticists and the OBGYN and the, the primary care physicians aware of what these conditions really mean and current research, and then making sure that all kids are tested and results released to the parents so that they can start being aware of things that they will need to become familiar with and be able to work with their sons and other professionals around them. In my mind, there's just no substitute for that. The cost of it is not out of reach at all. In fact, they're talking about having $100 and $200 genomic tests now that can be done with kids after birth. And so for a cost of that versus the hundreds and thousands of dollars that we spent over decades of trying to find answers for our son. There's there's just no comparison. Top it off with the premature death of someone that didn't simply need to happen. There's no trade-off. These policymakers have got to get over the challenges of trying to get the rest of the world acquainted with them and then making sure that information is available and then offering these tests to families as these kids are born. So they are aware at a very early age that it may exist and there may be some intervention that you have to do.
0: Couldn't one say, well, why don't we just wait until we see if in a person issues come up and then we can deal with them?
1: I understand and I understand their limited view of what can be effective. The fact that it doesn't cost very much at all, and it can have a profound impact on kids if it's addressed at younger ages. They cannot wait until somebody hits puberty and then expect to be able to step, step in and be able to have the best results from neural developmental work. It's too late. You know, they can't do anything at that particular. It's like knowing that someone in their 30s might develop. A fatal medical condition because of their genetic makeup, but there's something that could be done when they were young to prevent that from happening. So are we going to wait until they actually show that they're going to develop that fatality and not be able to do anything about it at the time? Or do you spend a little bit of money and prevent it from happening at all? It's faulty logic. It doesn't make any sense that they would risk putting someone in a situation where they are going to die prematurely or really have incredible struggles and spend tens of thousands of dollars in ineffective medical care because someone doesn't know that they have this particular genetic condition it it just it, it defies logic but it's also how governments often work so we've got to make a convincing argument and people on the other side in policy making positions have got to understand that they're making an investment at that particular point that could have profound impact on a whole hundreds of thousands of people. It's estimated that there's something like 600,000 or more Kleinfelder guys um, in the United States alone. So worldwide, it's in the millions and it's not just a US issue, it's, it's in every country. And so we're talking about uh, an impact
0: that could have tremendous uh, effect on, on a lot of people's lives. And perhaps even in shorter time frames, because you were saying earlier how important it is today for parents to be very strong advocates for their children and for those children as they grow up to learn to be advocates for themselves. However, the pressure that this puts on families to coordinate multiple health care providers to preempt issues that they need to educate themselves about as if they were a highly competent medical professional. At the same time, they have their own jobs and possibly other siblings to take care of. Even the best of parents, let's say, might be very challenged by this. So in what you've just said, isn't there also a benefit by early diagnosis early intervention and good information to reduce the burden and improve quality of life, not only of those children and their futures as adults, but also of families in general and communities in general. Absolutely no question. The amount of
1: time and effort necessary from families to be able to access and obtain the help that their kid may need that has a genetic condition would be reduced by 80% maybe 90% versus what we see out here today i was fortunate enough to have a healthcare background so i could get into managing you know as a team leader all of the various specialties and issues that our son needed to get assistance with 95% or more of families out there aren't going to have that skill set so the road is even harder and longer them and and you're absolutely right elliot i mean they they're going to have to give up something you know to be able to figure out how to educate themselves and then how to negotiate the system and that's just a huge waste of time you know it's going to take them away from other family from their jobs from their role as husband or wife you end up having to dedicate yourself to making sure your kid's going to get what they need and there's no question in my mind that 99% 99% of the families we're talking about will do that if they're aware, and, and if that's what they're presented with, they'll they'll take the energy and time and effort to do it because they want their kid to have a good life. There's very little doubt that they would take the effort to make it happen, but it's not necessary. They could get help and support from so many different ways, and it's just not, it's not there yet, but we're going to keep pounding on it.
0: I have a few um last questions for you that i've asked people who have chromosomal differences and since we're talking about growing up with michael i think it's only fair i ask them of you they are questions from uh, james lipton used to ask on the actor studio what's your favorite word truth what's your least favorite word hatred what makes you happy basically honesty and sincerity from wherever both of those are
1: very strong characteristics i look for in in anybody i I deal with
0: what sound do you love
1: i'm a thunderstorm kind of guy i like thunderstorms (laughs) so when it storms you normally can find me sitting outside under a roof somewhere watching the lightning and listening to thunder
0: what sound do you
1: hate or dislike as you i think you know i was trained as a registered nurse and spent a number of years working in the clinical environment in hospitals, both with adults and kids. And I have to say, listening to people crying out in pain is just something that I have a hard time with that, of not being able to do something to be able to make that better. So yeah, crying in pain. What's your favorite curse word? Bullshit. (laughs) I use it probably more often than my wife would like me to, but sometimes it's just the perfect word for describing situations and it relates to your favorite word of truth yeah
0: exactly that's exactly right what profession other than yours would you have liked to attempt you know i would have enjoyed being an accomplished writer i enjoy
1: writing and and sharing information with people and if i could have been fiction or a nonfiction writer i I would have pursued that if I thought I could make any money at it.
0: <laughs> what profession um, would you not like to have attempted?
1: Politics, without a doubt. We need more people that want to be involved in that area so because it has such huge implications. But the environment that
0: it is now, I, there's no way I, I'd be able to stand. I wouldn't last a, a day. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say? when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: I'm not absolutely convinced that's the direction I'll be going, but if it is, uh, the best thing I could expect to hear from him is uh, a statement that I was right. (laughs) Whatever Whatever it was, I was right. Um, That's brilliant, Gary.
0: Thank you so much. In loving memory of Michael, here is the eulogy that was found in his truck shortly after his death, as written by Michael himself. Michael was born July 5, 1984, to parents Gary and Paula Gleesman in Omaha, Nebraska. Survived by his parents, Grandmother Joan Gleesman Pistello, Aunt Lisa Jensen, and Uncle Mark Armstrong, Aunt Cindy Gleesman loving family Chris and Sarah Short, and children, and Kelly Warner, and children. preceded in death by both grandfathers, Henry Gleesman and Kenneth Jensen, grandmother Edith Jensen, and his beloved cat and dog, Manyard and Max. Michael was a proud Eagle Scout and a graduate of Brownwell Talbot, class of 2002, and had an associate degree from Metro Tech. He struggled with addiction most of his adult life, but was currently on a much better path, living at home with his parents and searching for inner peace. He was a kind and gentle soul and will be greatly missed by all of his friends and family. Thank you for listening to the second of two episodes with Gary Gleesman about Growing Up with Michael. As you heard, the absence of systematic early detection, intervention and support can come at high cost to many individuals and families. As a result, Gary calls for parents to be assertive advocates for the needs of their children from early age onwards and to demand better support. At the same time, he calls for policymakers to invest in systematic early detection, information and intervention. Possibly the single biggest takeaway is that the right kind of support has the potential to change and save lives at scale, with benefits likely to far outweigh costs. I hope you found this episode helpful. Please show your support by donating to our podcast today. With your help, we will ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity in children and adults notified to you weekly in your inbox. Tune in next week for another conversation about growing up with chromodiversity and have a wonderful day.